0: Well, all right. So we've had trail mix and uh, water and we're all strong again. I like it. That's good. Welcome back. We're glad you guys are here. Thanks for being willing to, to, to think about this really hard subject. Man, I'm going to tell you, I wasn't joking when I gave the introduction last time. People have fought about this. Churches have split over this. Denominations have formed Uh, over very precise disagreements over what's the right words to use to describe God's grace to us. Uh, I don't want that to happen. (laughs) I I think things have gone wrong when that takes place. Uh, But it is fundamental to who we are that God has been gracious to us. And one way to think of it is, We are living off someone else's hard work, folks. That's what grace means. We are living off someone else's hard work. When uh, Doug was talking to me about uh, this topic, he he used a phrase uh, that he said, I don't want to say this. So, of course, I'm going to put it on the screen. We are saved by grace, but... Because you've heard it talked like uh, about in that way, we are saved by grace, but you gotta do stuff, and you gotta do that. You gotta be baptized. You gotta, you know, we're saved by grace, but God expects you to, right? You've you've heard that kind of approach to grace, as if, well, I don't want to get too carried away with grace, because then people will just get lazy and uh, and you know put it all on God. We're saved by grace, but so. No, we're saved by grace, period. Period, full stop. No further. We are saved by grace. Nothing we do is able to contribute merit or worth or value to what it is that saves us. That is perfectly true, and it's obvious in Scripture. Uh, One passage that makes this very clear Uh, Luke 17, verse 10. I don't think I have that in your uh, study booklet, but Jesus says, you know, imagine that you're somebody else's servant and you labor in their fields all day. And at the end of the day, what happens? It's dinner time. Does the person you work for Say, oh, sit down here. Let me clear off a place for you. Here's your food. No. If you're you're that person's slave, what do you do? What happened? You remember that story? You're going to serve them. You're tired. You're hungry. But they're the master. And so you serve them. And do they say, oh, just that's great. You've earned credit. No, that's what your duty is. That's your job. And Jesus, it's kind of a harsh saying. He says, When we have done everything, you do stuff. Grace doesn't mean you don't do stuff. But when you have done everything you were told to do, you should say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. You know, Christians do a lot. C.S. Lewis says, in one sense, it's obviously true we don't do anything to save ourselves. In another sense, we do a lot. Um, Christians are asked to do a lot. How come nothing we do saves us? Why is that? Well, part of that's, I think, pretty logical. We understand why it is that although God asks us to respond to him, and that's an action on our part, I think. We, 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 we can accept God's grace and respond to God. Nothing we do brings merit to what God has done to take care of our sins. And this is just an old problem. It's actually mentioned a couple of times in the Old Testament. Some of the psalms say, what kind of sacrifice can I uh, really ask for from you? If you were to give me, you know, bulls and goats from your stalls why would i care god says I, I i own all the cattle on every hill in the world why why do you think i'm impressed with your cows right and that's kind of the problem if you're worshipping a small god small g god who's kind of just a force of nature like zeus or aphrodite or you know apollo or something That small G God might have needs and you might be able to serve those needs. You might be able to do some favors for him. That's the way the Babylonians viewed the gods. Human beings are made in the Babylonian cosmos. They're made because the gods don't want to work for a living. They live off of the smoke of sacrifices and human beings, you know, we'll get them to do that work. They'll They'll make sacrifices and they'll feed us and we don't have to labor as hard anymore. That's what humans are for. If you got small g-gods in your theology, then that's right. But, but the God we serve is the perfect God, lacks nothing. Plus, everything that's around us is his. He made it all, right? So if I give him my very best self, well, he gave that to me first. If I say, okay, I promise, though, I'm going to do my best for you. I'm going to really try hard. He gave me all the strength I'm using. He gave me all the heart I'm using. He gave me all the brains I'm using to make all that effort, right? He's my God. He is my maker. He is my creator. So many useless arguments assume a relationship to God that we don't have. And this is strange, but I really want to assert this strongly if I can, because this took me a long time to get to, and I'm pretty sure it's closer to right than what I used to believe, so that I'm sharing it with you. If God, A lot of useless arguments, and I mean by deep thinkers, but still useless, assume that if I do something, God doesn't do it. On the other hand, if God does something, then I don't do it. You know, if, 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 if I am involved somehow in any action that contributes in any way to accepting the salvation of God, then it's not God saving me. And on the other hand, if it's God who saves me by grace then I must contribute nothing whatsoever. And that sets up this false dichotomy. What it actually says is, God's not really the creator and maker and sustainer of the world. He's kind of in the world with us, and so our actions are in competition with his. You know, I do stuff or he does stuff. You know, if, if, if we find that somebody has knocked over the, the water bottles back in the back, and we're looking for the culprit who did that. And we, and we think it's Doug. But then we find out later it was Richard the whole time. I don't know where Richard is, so I'm just pointing randomly. Then we know it's not Doug anymore, right? Because creatures, their actions are in competition with each other. One person did it, then the other person is not needed to do it. And we have talked about God like he's like that. Well, sometimes the Bible uses imagery that might sound like that, but, but the big image of God is he's our maker. He's our creator. Now, I will tell you, this is one of those places where we're running up against our limitations on our ability to imagine God, right? Our ability to figure out what God is like. But there are some images you're very familiar with where writers in both the Old Testament and the New Testament try to help us understand this. The next picture kind of is one of the very famous images used by Isaiah, used by Jeremiah, used by Paul then, called back by Paul as well in Romans, that God's actions do not rule out our actions. You can actually say that something that we do is something God is doing, and that's not a contradiction in the way it would be if it was two of us doing that action. Now, this is a mind twister. It's very strange to think about, but that's the way the Bible talks about it, in case after case after case. Who destroyed Jerusalem? In the Old Testament, who destroyed Jerusalem? Destroyed the temple. The Babylonians. And in fact, they get in trouble for it. God says, I know that they did it. And they will be punished. You know, that's part of his answer to Habakkuk. Who destroyed the temple? God did. Well, which is it? Right? Right? Well, as long as you are stuck in the assumption we had two slides back, either God did it or I did it, that's an unsolvable problem. And that's not a problem the Bible is willing to be trapped in. Because God's the maker of the pots. We're the pots. Next slide. We're the pots. God's the potter. Our work aren't enough like God's to ever compete with him or to rule his actions out. It's very strange to think about it like that, but that's the truth. That's the way it's talked about in the Old Testament, and that's the way it's talked about again and again in the New Testament. It's not, I'm telling you, this is a mind twister, and you can kind of tell that because the Old Testament and the New Testament will talk about it in various ways, but you see this image again and again uh, in scripture a passage that i love which we started last session with first corinthians chapter 15 paul ends it talking about his own apostleship and the fact that he was privileged to get to see jesus resurrected even though he was born at the wrong time you know he was kind of not in the group of the apostles that got to be with jesus while he was alive But he says, you know, I'm really not worthy to be an apostle because I persecuted the church. But God chose me anyway. God showed grace to me anyway. And by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I. It was the grace of God that was with me. Well, which is it, Paul? Paul? Did you work hard? Did you put out effort? Did you struggle? Or did God do it? If you're dealing with Thor or Zeus or Hermes or Aphrodite, that's a legitimate question. But the Bible doesn't think it's a legitimate question when you're talking about the Creator. The Creator's actions are on a different level than on the, the level of the creation. And they are not in competition in the same way. The illustration I've used many times, I may have used it with you guys on another context because I just love this illustration. Uh, who killed Darth Vader? The emperor killed Darth Vader, right? It was blue lightning. He was trying to get Luke to kill him. Was that what happened? Was that, give me some help here, people. Yeah, okay, so he's trying to get Luke to kill him, but in this, I mean, I'm sorry if this is a spoiler, but it has been a long time. Yeah, so the emperor kills Darth Vader. So why are there still people that are mad at George Lucas for killing off Darth Vader? Why would somebody, you know, as smart as George Lucas, kill off his best character ever? As revealed by the fact that in the most recent relaunch, they brought Darth Vader back with a vengeance. You know, And everybody was so excited, right? They got to see Darth Vader in his full evil glory. Um, who killed Darth Vader? Well, George Lucas did in the creator sense. And the Emperor did in the creation sense. And our logic doesn't really is not set up to deal with that very well, but that's the truth, huh? Darth Vader's love for his son. Uh, Darth Vader's love for his son also killed him. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. <laughs> good. I like it. Also, you just outed yourself as a nerd. Uh, very good. <laughs> very good. <laughs> um, you see the problem here. And I say this is a problem because I'm not joking when I say this is split churches. This is split denominations. This, uh, this has ripped people apart because you won't say it just the way I want you to say it about what part you do and what part God does or do you do any part or does God do all of it or does you do no, none of it, you know, because you won't say it the way I want you to say it. We can't be in fellowship. I mean, that has split big groups in Christianity. And I think some of those arguments are missing the point. Paul talks like, when I'm doing my very hardest work, my best work, I'm thinking real hard, I'm making tough choices, I'm doing the best, I'm strategizing and everything. That's God flowing through me. Man, that is God in me and that's God with me and, and making these things happen, right? I mean, that's the way Paul seems to visualize it. I told you my beard would reject this thing eventually. Anybody got scotch tape? I will rise up and call you blessed if you have scotch tape. Well, I'm already up, but I will call you blessed, I promise, if you bring me scotch tape anytime. Okay, so uh, we have these fights over this issue Let's go back one slide just for a second. Let's go back one slide. We have these fights over this issue, and I'm sorry that we do, because I think this is an issue that Scripture leaves us in a different place than our own logic does. We have a hard time thinking about God as creator and, you know, our creaturely action and the fact that when we do good things, it's God. God. When we fail to do good things, it's, you know, falling away from God, I think. But, uh, you know, that, that God's action and our actions are, are not in competition the way creatures' actions can be in competition with each other. And I think that's a, that's a weird thing to think about, but I think it will help us as we try to understand grace. So now the next slide says In Scripture, when the Scripture writers in the New Testament write about this, especially Paul, his big contrast is not really between grace and works. Sounds like it is sometimes. But it's hard to find the scripture where he says, uh, where he really means what we mean when we say, "You rise up and call you blessed, my brother. Thank you so much. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to take this sucker to my face. It's going to be ugly, but I don't care. All right, there it is. That's going to be gross for the rest of the night. Uh, In Paul, it's much more about boasting works. He says, it's not by works lest any man boast. That's what he says in Ephesians chapter 2. It's not by works lest any man should boast. Right? Right? And what he's worried about is you boasting. When he, in, in Romans chapter 4, this is not in your study sheet, so you'd have to actually look this up, but in Romans chapter 4, he talks about Abraham. And he says it's not by works, it was by faith. But the works that he's talking about are works that would allow you to be boastful. In particular, if you look back in the context of chapter 3, it's specifically the works of circumcision and the other aspects of the law the works that, not coincidentally, the Jewish Christians were specifically being boastful about over the non-Jewish Christians. It's the boastful works that are the problem. <clears throat> what makes boastful works? What makes, uh, what makes boastful works? Boasting works our works, and you can kind of tell when you're in the realm of boasting works, when your works start taking on, when your actions for God, when the righteousness you do for God starts to take on these characteristics. When you start doing things fervently to replace drawing near to God, now, that's a weird one, but I want, I, I want you to understand what I'm talking about. I can get super fervent about worship, super fervent about caring for the poor, which are, these are good things to do, by the way, super fervent about studying my Bible, because I've got a pet rebellion against God, a place of where I'm pushing God away, and I don't want to deal with that in my life, and I don't want to confront that in my life, and I don't want God to get close to me in that area. And so I will use works in order to kind of distract myself from the fact that I'm in rebellion to God over here. That can happen. And I'm, in that case, I'm mostly boasting to myself. Look at how righteous I am, though. Look at all the good things I do, though. Surely God can give me a pass over here for this one thing I'm doing. That's a boastful work. Another sign, I think, of boastful work is the one Jesus calls out in the Sermon on the Mount. Works that I'm doing mainly to be seen by other people. Two main forms, lots of minor forms, but two main forms for this. Works to be seen by other people so that I will be praised. And works to be seen by other people so that I won't get yelled at or criticized. Both of those are works where I'm not really, I mean, I may be doing really religious looking stuff, but my focus has very little to do with getting closer to God. It has a lot to do with what other people think of me. So I'm out here evangelizing or I'm out here again taking care of the needy or doing these things, studying my scriptures, praying fervently, but the way I'm doing that is to make sure that you see me. That I'm recognized as a righteous person. And Jesus actually paints a picture. I think in Matthew chapter 6, you can read it for yourself and think, see what you think. But Matthew chapter 6, he almost paints this picture where I can be doing these very rigorous sets of works, of actions as a religious person. And I don't need to think about God at all. If I, if I do it long enough and habitually enough, all I'm ever thinking about is, oh, boy, I bet people are really impressed with me now. Look at that. And I'm doing so much more than Fred is. It's ama- I, everybody's got to eventually notice that I'm way more holy than Fred is, right? That's pride-type boasting works. The other is, you know, works to avoid criticism or getting yelled at, you know? I do my religious stuff, but the main thing that's in my mind is not, this will make me closer to God, this will help God be near and alive in my life and active in me, but this is going to keep my in-laws off my back, or this is going to keep me from looking like I'm a little shaky on doctrine. You know, Some of the worst things we see in Scripture are when people are afraid of being criticized. Sinful woman bursts into a dinner at Simon's house. She's overcome with emotion for love of Jesus. She's weeping. Her tears are so copious. They're able to literally wash Jesus's feet. I mean, can you imagine crying? And she spends this enormous amount of money to to take care of Jesus in that moment. And And what's Simon's attitude towards this woman who's clearly in distress? If nothing else, she's clearly in distress. Do you remember Simon's attitude in that moment? Yeah, oh, Jesus, you, you. That woman's not even a person anymore to him because he's so worried about what other people think of her. And what will other people think of me? If I were letting her touch me like that, think of all the criticism I'd face the next day. And Jesus, you're letting her touch you. and ooh, I'm embarrassed it's happening in my house that you're letting her touch you. You know, that is another kind of boasting works where I'm doing it and it looks like it's religious, it looks like it's holy, but it has very little to do with bringing God closer to me. Bringing God into my heart. It's not about how hard you work. It's about how close you are to God. (laughs) That's what grace is. It's this privilege we have of letting God come into us. Also, the other, the third kind of work, boasting work, is works that allow me to judge other people, to feel righteous and superior to other people. Um, in the New Testament, this rears its head sometimes both, uh, on both sides of the Jewish-Gentile divide. The Jewish Christians would even double down on their Jewishness, more fervent observance of the Sabbath, more fervent uh, adherence to circumcision and the festival days, because in some way they felt that made them more godly than the Gentiles. And they had the ability to look down on the Gentiles because of that. And in reverse, sometimes the Gentile Christians could be just as, just as mean to the Jewish Christians. The Jewish Christians, their whole life, they've been told you just can't trust them food that's out there in the marketplace. Some of this food, meat, may have been sacrificed to idols. So they just, you know, if they don't know for sure where it's sourced, if it's not responsibly sourced, they just won't touch it. And the Gentile Christians were loving that. Some of them were. And deliberately enjoying, you know, displaying their freedom in the face of these, these Jewish Christians whose consciences were being hurt by that. Boasting works. Works so I can be judgmental on you look at how righteous I am. Look at how worthless you are. When you feel those things happening to you, then you realize I'm doing work, but I'm doing work that's trying to boast. And that's the kind of work that's opposed to grace, because that's the kind of work that does not bring God closer into your heart. It does not make God more alive in you. What are the grace works? Grace works is, are revealed whenever uh, God becomes more active in our life. We find grace exploding in us whenever God becomes more active in us. God's, uh, God says, you work as hard as you want to. Work as hard as you can. Paul, labor, that's fine. Your work is not a threat to God's glory. You wouldn't think I would need to say that. But there is a whole strand of theology in which that was a huge issue. That's a huge issue, for instance, in some of the theology of Martin Luther is that if I work too much or if I work in the wrong way that threatens my dependence on the grace of God boastful work is a threat to grace but work itself laboring for God doing everything God has commanded me to do and doing it cheerfully and happily with the spirit of God coursing through me that's just glorious glorious That means God is in me and near me. That's what I was built to be. God's desire in grace is to grow us into our true human glory. You are built to do God's righteousness. You are built to be God's temple. To to be where God is in this world. and, And... and so, yes, that righteousness is, is, is called for and is demanded by God, is expected from you. Not that it adds one whit to your salvation, but it expresses the fact that you now are living as God's temple, as, as the place where God is. Philippians 2 12 through 13 says work out your own salvation or with fear and trembling for it is god who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose the prize of grace is god alive in us and the prize of grace is manifested when you feel yourself being activated to do things for God. Now, what does that look like for you? What does that look like for me? What does that look like for someone else? I think it's, there's not a one-size-fits-all here. I, I, I think we're going to talk about that tomorrow uh, in our Bible class when we talk about how God gives us as his grace to the church. There's different ways in which God's grace manifests itself through each one of us. But God working through you is the sign that grace has happened to you and that grace is continuing to grow in you. God near in your life because you are working. Uh, Next slide. Grace works... um, tell us that God comes near through grace to help us be capable of more things, not less. I am hoping as Christianity matures, we can once and for all have the funeral for the view that says Christianity is a religion of subtraction. Sometimes that's the way Christianity is preached, and I think I'm seeing some people nod, so I think you know what I'm talking about. Christianity is a religion of subtraction. You take human beings, and you tell them stuff they can't do, and you subtract that out of their lives, right? And then that's what you have. And that's the opposite of the way Jesus thinks about it. That's the opposite of the way Paul thinks about it. Christianity is what is setting human beings free to live full human lives as they were intended to. The the more grace you have in your life, the more alive you're going to be. I came so that you could have life, so that you could have it abundantly. I want to make you more, not less. Grace is not about how much you do. It's about how close you are to God. We are living off of somebody else's hard work when we live by grace. That's okay. Because the one we're living off of, whose hard work we're living off of, is the one who is our life. God allowing us to be near him More than that, God coming to take up residence in us to live in our hearts. That is the thing that our life right now is about. Now, this is still a fallen world. This temple is set up in the middle of a world that's in rebellion. You live your life, I live my life as a temple of God. This congregation lives its life as a temple of God with God's presence in it in the middle of a world that still is rebelling against God. One day that rebellion will end. God's glory will cover the earth as the water covers the sea, prophets say. That's going to happen. But in the meantime, you and I have a life to live which calls God deeper and deeper into our hearts. Let's have a prayer. Dear God, thank you so much for your many, many blessings to us. Thank you so much that you love us enough to wash us with the blood of Jesus so that we can welcome the Holy Spirit into our lives. God, help us from this day forward to to live with your presence in our lives and to invite more of it in each day. God, help us to be your people Help us to represent you out into the world. Help, you, help us to be a place that when people come to us, healing occurs and righteousness occurs and holiness occurs. God, we pray we can be your temples. These things we pray in the name of Christ. Amen. I got, uh, I got one question that Doug gave me that I know about, and there may be another one. No, just that one. Uh, One question I got uh, uh, over the last one, I'll go ahead and address it now. Um, Somebody asked, so are you saying the Holy Spirit is the same as the Shekinah or glory cloud of the Old Testament? Uh, Kinda, I am. You know, the point of the glory cloud, it was a visible manifestation of what? You know, God is here. And when Ezekiel sees it leave, that was a visible vision for him of God is gone. So this is just a building now, right? And so, yes, I, I don't think it's exactly identical because the Shekinah cloud had that particular purpose to serve, the, you know, to represent visually the, the presence of God. But the presence of God is what matters. And the point, what made the temple the temple was the presence of God. What made the tabernacle The tabernacle is the presence of God, and what makes you you as a baptized Christian is the presence of God, and I really do think that's not a figure of speech. I think that's literally true, that God has taken up residence in you, and you don't deserve it, and I don't deserve it either. God's done it anyway, you know. He didn't ask our advice. I probably would have told him, I don't think that's a good idea, but he put his Holy Spirit in us, and he wants you and I to live like that's true. That's grace, folks. That's grace. Okay, thanks very much. I don't know what it is. My beard just hates these things.